scripture reading today is going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, And I had a terrible time choosing one of two passages, and I trust that the Lord directed me to the passage that would bless our church the most. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. And what I would ask you to pay attention to as I read through this selection uh, is notice how many people were set aside for service, and notice how Paul describes that they were proved publicly to be trustworthy and, and worthy of service to the church. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 16, Scripture says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now this is not my main text, but I love to take the scripture reading passage and demonstrate the unity of scripture. How God says the same thing in different places throughout the Bible to help us understand what the scriptures mean and how we can put them in practice in our church. And so I grabbed these verses out of 2 Corinthians where Paul is talking specifically about a collection for the church in Jerusalem that was experiencing poverty. Now, That's the kind of idea that's fantastic that a church wants to get behind, and yet there are logistical details that really matter. And the things that I'd like to point you to in this text are the fact that those who served had been given a willing heart by God. They had served publicly in the past so that the church knew they were trustworthy, and their goal was to be honorable in the sight of both God and men. They wanted to know that they were honest in collecting this money for the church in Jerusalem, that none of it would go missing, and that all of it would arrive at the church so that they had integrity. And Paul says that the glory of Christ was on display in the generosity of the churches who were giving to the ministry, And the glory of Christ was on display in the integrity of those who served and their willingness to serve. All of that to say, let's turn to the book of 1 Timothy. And I want to preach the second of two messages on deacons this morning. With the aim of demonstrating that what we've seen in 2 Corinthians gives us insight into the type of character and the type of qualities that are necessary 
for those who serve in the office of deacon. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8, says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, or I argued strongly last week, I believe that's better translated Women, as in women who serve as deacons, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. With that read... I want to demonstrate three things from this text today. Number one, the character qualifications that are essential for those who serve in the office of deacon. Number two, the spiritual qualifications that are essential for those who serve in the office of deacon. And number three, the home life qualifications for those who serve in the office of deacon. But before I do any of that, I need to finish what I began last week in describing the office so that we're clear on why we're talking about all of these qualifications. And I realized I don't think I actually said anything about what the word deacon means. These are the things I think of Monday morning when I open my eyes and see the ceiling and go, why didn't you do that? So the word deacon literally means servant. It's used in several places throughout the New Testament, sometimes in a technical way that refers to the office, and sometimes just as a word that people who spoke Greek would have used to describe a very personal kind of service. Uh, Mark Dever and those who work with him have suggested that elders are servant leaders with an emphasis on leading and authority, which they exercise through the ministry of the word and also casting vision for the church. Deacons are lead servants with an emphasis on serving, which they do by administering a variety of ministries within the church. So the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, and it not only means a servant, but it means very particularly the type of servant who gives personal attention to the person being served. And there is one context where I think everyone here can identify with exactly the idea behind this, and that is when you're sitting at a restaurant and you enjoy the service that a great server gives you. It's the kind of server that always keeps your coffee cup full so that you never have to ask for a refill. Thankful for those people. The kind of server who anticipates exactly when you want dessert and doesn't embarrass you by asking if you want the dessert menu. They know that you want dessert. The kind of server that doesn't make you wait for the check but also doesn't rush you out the door. And the kind of server that knows the exact balance of being conversational and welcoming, but also giving you the privacy you need to eat and share time with the people that you've gathered at the restaurant for. That type of server who gives very careful attention to your wants and needs and desires and tries as best they can to meet them even before you ask for them. 
that's what deacons in the church are supposed to be like. They make everyone feel welcome, they are very quick to anticipate needs, and they do something to meet the need. They don't just drop a list of things that must be done off in the office and then go on their merry way. They actually meet the needs that they recognize are there. And I want to encourage you, for those of you who've been involved in Christmas in Action in the past, to think about what this means at Christmas in Action. Think in particular about those who wear red shirts at Christmas in Action. Those are not the expendable people like red shirts in Star Trek. Those are the people in charge who know what needs to be done and organize the team so that it gets done. I actually called Ed this past week, and I said, hey, can you give me an example that would be helpful and not embarrassing for anyone in the community that would really drive home this point? He said, absolutely. I've got the perfect example for you. One of the first houses that they ever did, uh, apparently, the, the police were called to assist a lady who had fallen on her steps a couple of times not far from where the police station was. And if you don't know what, what Christmas in Action is, uh, it's a local organization that uh, Pastor Ed and some of the leadership of our church had brought here to Holly. They've been helping remodel and meet basic needs of seniors and those with income limitations in our local community. Uh, so it now that it's somewhat established, they will get requests from people in the community who need help with something that is beyond their means to fix. And in this instance, they were contacted by the police department because the police had gone and helped a lady and they knew very clearly that she at least needed a railing on her front steps because she'd fallen for lack of a railing to hang on to as she went up and down her steps. So when... Christmas in Action is called, they send someone to the home to get a sense of, is this something we can help with, and what else might there be that needs to be done? And in this instance, Ed says, the person that went to the home discovered not only did she need a railing, but actually once they got inside, her home was in very poor repair. Uh, and for years, this is maybe a little bit gross, so I kind of apologize, uh, but the toilet had not been seated on the drain pipe and had been leaking for years so that the floor all around it was rotted away. Ed said the toilet was actually resting on a rock so that it wouldn't move. And so she asked for a railing. But what she got was a new floor in her bathroom. They actually were able to assist her with remodeling her kitchens. And she didn't ask for any of those things. She knew she needed a railing, but she had just grown used to living in the way that she had lived, even though her house was in terrible repair. And the servant hearts that lead Christmas in action went in and heard the need that she had, but saw several others that she didn't even know she had, and they met those needs without her even asking. Now that's the example of someone who has a willing heart, who's able to see the situation and address the need and meet it in a practical way. But here's the thing. Just like you may have competent people within the church who can serve in a variety of ministries, competence does not equal qualified. And so I want to ask you to imagine for a moment, uh, Christmas actually has never had this problem, but imagine for a moment 
someone who has great skill and ability in understanding how to repair a toilet and fix a roof and build a deck, and yet they are not able to lead a team. Maybe they micromanage to such an extent that you have to do it exactly their way. And so before long, instead of asking you to help, they say, no, 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 just get out of my way, I'll do it. Well, if that happens, they might be qualified to fix something, but they are not qualified to lead something. So there's more than just competence in a particular area of expertise. There are character qualifications for things like Christmas in action and also within the church. We must not elevate people who can do a particular task but lack the spiritual qualifications and the character qualifications and the home life qualifications that the Bible says are necessary for those who serve in public office. And so this morning, I want to take you through the three areas that Paul describes, and we're going to focus in on a couple of them more so than the others and describe what the character and spiritual life and home life of a deacon must be like. First of all, in verse 8, Paul says, Deacons likewise must be dignified or honorable or noble. They are not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, I've labeled all of these as character qualifications. They deal with attitude. They deal with what you ingest, your appetites, being self-controlled and what you desire, and how you speak. Each of these demonstrates a person who is self-controlled, who knows how to, to know exactly when to say something. And, and I'll mention just one kind of goofy illustration. Uh, when I talked about elders, uh, the idea of being dignified, I said, we believe that heaven and hell is on the line for every eternal soul. There is a great seriousness about being a Christian. And yes, of course, we're full of joy. And yes, of course, like our heavenly father, we want to have a sense of humor and we want to enjoy the good gifts God has given. And yet, there are times where we must be very serious. And so our lives are not to be characterized by a lack of self-control in any way. Uh, so some of you remember a couple of, couple of months ago, maybe almost a year ago, uh, little Mark got injured right before service here at the church. Uh, his brother slammed a door that he should not have opened, and, and uh, Mark's finger got caught, and, and it got smashed very badly. Uh, one of the worst injuries I've seen. Uh, in fact, the doctors kind of privately said, to themselves, but Lauren overheard, we're not sure we can save the end of his finger. Um, so it was a terrible injury, and I left before service started. I drove them to the ER. I thought they would let me go in. They didn't, but as we drove, we'd had that initial adrenaline, like, oh, this is terrible. This, you know, what do we do? And, and panicked a little bit. Oh, we're going to go to the hospital. And as we drove, I began to start thinking, okay, I need to, I need to help all of us calm down, and, and we're going we're gonna to get through this. This is going to be okay. People do live without their fingers, so even if they lose it, it'll be okay. Well, you know, he's got nine other ones. And I thought for a moment, is this a good time to joke? Um, 
because there's always the possibility that you could chuckle a little and cut the, cut the tension down just a little bit. And then there's the possibility that it could go the other way and your joke is insensitive and the worst thing that you could say and now you've got anger on top of frustration and fear. And I decided that in all of my wisdom, it probably was a good time to cut a joke. So I said, hey, Lauren is sitting next to the car seat where baby Mark is still kind of crying and fussing because his finger hurts a lot. And I said, hey, is it on his right hand or is it on his left hand? And she said, well, uh, it's, it's, his, it's his right hand. And I said, oh, good. She said, good? Said, yeah, that means he won't have a problem when he learns how to play guitar. He doesn't really need that finger. Some of you are like, Argh. I can tell you this is one scenario where I got it right, that the ability to laugh and joke just a little bit really did help us relax as we were on the way to ER. And that, I think, is part of what makes a good servant in the church. Someone who, they don't always have to be cutting a joke or getting attention for themselves with their sense of humor, but they understand the emotional needs of the people around them, and they do have a sense of, man, a joke would help right now, or... Man, this is not the time for joking. This is a time for serious prayer. This is a time for me to open the word and, and to point you to a passage that could comfort you or, or potentially confront you. You say, well, I thought that was more the job of, of an elder. Friends, deacons are responsible for helping people spiritually as well as physically. So yes, they are not called to teach. But you might look at Stephen, who in the early church in Acts 6 was appointed to serve as a deacon. And just a few chapters later, he is preaching one of the longest sermons in the New Testament with passion and a knowledge of the scriptures. And so if you believe that you have the gifting to serve more as a deacon, you do need to be ready to meet people's spiritual needs as well. And so I want to encourage you to have the ability to be dignified and self-controlled. The scripture says not double-tongued, meaning you don't change what you say based on who you're talking to, but you are consistent no matter who you're talking to. Scripture says not addicted to much wine. I, I talked a little bit about that in terms of elders. A scripture I don't believe prohibits using alcohol moderately and wisely but it does prohibit abusing any substance. So you don't lose control of your emotions, you don't lose control of your speech, and you don't lose control of your appetites. You are not a glutton or a drunkard. Instead, you manifest Christian self-control, and you are dignified. That's the character of someone who serves in this official office as a lead servant. Now, what are the spiritual qualifications? Well, verse 9 says, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I think that's a surprising way to say what I think Paul means. And yet, I believe that he chose this very deliberately, and there's a lot of meaning here. It would have been easier for him to say, Deacons must agree with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He could have said that. Uh, it, it makes it clear that deacons must recognize Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. It makes it clear they believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. And yet, here's what I think it misses. And I want to highlight this word mystery right here. Because I believe Paul used it very deliberately. 
the mystery of the faith is not just truth that you need to say, yeah, I checked that box, I agree with that. The mystery of the faith gets at the wonder of what God is doing, not only in your life, but in the life of your church. A few verses down, Paul says, you can read with me, this is verse 16 of chapter 3, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, it's easy to be acquainted with that and to forget how strange and marvelous and even magical that seems. The mystery is an attitude of wonder at what God has done and is doing. When you look at it, how it's used throughout the New Testament, Paul always uses this term, not in reference with something that's past, but in reference with something that's present, with what God is doing. We've been praying through the book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights, and Paul expounds on great length on the mystery of godliness. And he describes how, against all expectations, God chooses to unite Jews and Gentiles who hated each other within the church, and that God's presence is no longer restricted to one area, but instead the temple of God exists everywhere believers gather. And that God is taking people who had been enemies, saving them, forgiving their sins, and bringing them into one body. And when he talks about that, he speaks very directly to his readers and said, God is doing this among you. And I believe that those who are called to serve as deacons, when they confess the mystery of the faith, it's not just they believe that they're Christians and Jesus is the Savior. It's that they believe that God is at work in their local church. And I want to give you one clear example of how I believe this worked at Moody Church. Believing that God is active among you is easy when times are good. It's challenging and much harder when times are difficult. And while I was at Moody, before the church called me to serve as a pastor here, uh, Erwin Lutzer, who had served that church for 34 years, announced that he was stepping down and retiring. And this is an emotional moment. You guys remember when Pastor Jack announced he was retiring, and later when Pastor Ed announced he was retiring. When you love a minister, it's hard to see that they are going to go. And so it was a big moment for the church. Moody Church is a large church and had a few people on pastoral staff, and one of them had been there for a long time and was very well loved by the church. He had been leading their college and career ministry, he had preached several times, and many people felt like he was in some sense an heir apparent. So they knew Pastor Lutzer was in his early 70s, they understood he's not going to serve forever, and so they had hoped that this other young guy would be the next guy. They knew him, they loved him, they trusted him, why do we even need a search committee? But... As they began to discuss the possibility of presenting this young man as a candidate, he was very open with them and said, hey, uh, you know, this is not an issue for me as a college and career pastor, but as a senior pastor, 
I take a slightly different understanding of some of the things that are very detailed in your doctrinal statement. And this was somewhat surprising and shocking to the elders. It was nothing major. It's the kind of thing that good Christians can disagree over. But the elders began to go, wait a minute. Could we call you to serve as our senior pastor if you understand this differently? And it was a heavy thing because many of them wanted to call this man as their senior pastor. So they began to study the word and they began to read a couple of different books on the topic. Uh, and I'll just, just so you're curious, uh, it was around really how we understand the relationship of Israel with the entire Bible. So does the church become a type of spiritual Israel? Some of you are like, who even cares about this stuff? It matters because it changes how you read the entire Bible. So as you look at the Old Testament, you start thinking, you know, does the church inherit all of those promises? Is there a future for the people of God, the Jews, that's distinct from the church? They're good questions to ask, and he answered them slightly differently than how Erwin Lutzer had answered them for the previous 35 years. And so as they wrestled with this, he and the elders both came to the conclusion that he was not the right candidate to become the next senior pastor of the church. And the elders had agreed and believed that this was true, and they then announced that to the deacons. Now, the deacons had not been part of the conversation. Many of them had expected that this young man would be the next pastor of Moody Church. And they, it was like a bomb went off in the room. Because immediately they found out that the guy they were hoping to be the next pastor would not, in any scenario, even be a candidate for the next pastor. And there were some people who were kind of angry. And this was not a short meeting, so I'm going to condense it for you. But over the course of that meeting, here's what happened. The people that God had called to serve in the office of deacon began to believe that God was at work and that what we had longed for was not what God had intended for the church, but God had intended something different. And even though there were people who were disappointed, they began to be at least understanding, and some of them even excited at what God would do when our plans and hopes had not gone the way we had expected. And what I want to say is, we were holding to the mystery of the faith. That the gospel of Jesus Christ was alive among us, and Jesus was leading his church through the word of God, and the leadership that had been established at the church. And what happened is a decision that the elders had made filtered in through the servant leaders of the church. And rather than causing division in the church later, the deacons absorbed some of that shock and were then able to say, we think God is at work here. Yeah, I know, I'm disappointed too that he's not going to be a candidate. But listen, I believe that this is pleasing to God. We are being faithful to the word as we understand it. And we think the world of this young man, but we believe that God has something else for him and something else for us. And so they're holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience made it 
easier to accept a decision that was difficult. You see what I'm saying? There's a difference between believing that Jesus is your Savior who died for your sins and rose from the dead. Lots of people agree with that. But believing that God is active in your church in the decisions that don't spring straight from the word of God, but instead are outworkings of the gospel. Believing that God is at work in your church makes it easier when times are hard to be faithful to the particular people who are a part of your church. And so deacons must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, I believe means more than they agree with the gospel. It means they recognize God is at work. Even in your disappointments and disagreements, God is at work here. And he's not leaving and going somewhere else. God is at work now. The mystery of the gospel is that Jesus is present here and is working in us and among us through his word and by his word. Now, I would be remiss if I did not also add this is a different qualification than elders are given. Elders are told very clearly they must be able to teach. Not every elder will teach regularly, but they must have the ability. Deacons are not required to have that ability. Deacons must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, but they are not obligated to communicate that in a public setting. So there are character qualifications. There are spiritual qualifications. Now I want to say a word about home life qualifications. And I'm going to read a a larger passage than I intend to focus on. But Paul says, verse 11 Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Verse 12, let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Two things. Number one, if you missed last week's message, I, I spent a large amount of time arguing, I believe that God has called women to serve in this office. You might look at these two verses and say, well, women can't be the wife of one man. Where are you getting that? Here's where I'm getting that, and I don't want to repeat the message, but I believe verse 11, which is better translated, women, is a sort of interruption in this text. Paul is talking mostly about the office of deacons. Verse 11 comes along, he makes it clear women can fulfill this office, and then he continues the conversation in verse 12 and makes it clear that your home life deeply matters. In fact, I think reading verses 11 and 12 together is very helpful because verse 12 would be totally redundant and unnecessary if verse 11 were talking about wives of deacons because it would be repetitive. He'd be saying their wives must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. And then also their homes must be well-ordered. And Well, you said the same thing twice. And I don't think that's what he means. I think instead, verse 11, he is giving some specific qualifications for women that are really just clarifications of what he's already said. And then in verse 12, he's saying, Deacon, your home life matters if you are going to be a public servant in the church. So if you have questions about that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to my last message. For the sake of time, I don't want to be too repetitive and review everything that I said last week. But verse 12 in particular, he says... Husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, there are two components to that. And I want to stress, just like I did with elders, I believe that husband of one wife is meaning 
Whoever holds the office of deacon needs to be faithful in marriage if they are married. Uh, Without much explanation, I said, I I do believe that those who have been divorced in the past could be qualified to serve in an official capacity. And you may have a lot of questions about that, and we should. But here's part of why. The Greek phrase, both for elders and for deacons, literally means a one-woman man. You might say, well, someone who has divorced and remarried is not a one-woman man. That's a two-woman man, or potentially even more than that. And here's why I don't believe this is talking about divorce and remarriage. The biggest reason, twofold. Number one, no one would say that this qualification means that elders and deacons must be married, right? It's completely possible for those who never marry to serve as elders or deacons. The church, for all of its history, has allowed single people. In fact, the Catholic Church demands that they be single. So this is not precluding singleness, but a very strict, literal interpretation of these exact words would say, no, you have to be married. And so I don't think, based on how the church has understood this, that we ought to take it in a very strict way. Instead, we need to understand that there is a call to marital faithfulness, that the health of a marriage for someone who is married is essential for public service in the church. The other thing that it would rule out if we were to have a very strict reading of this would be someone whose spouse passed away and then remarried. So think for a moment of Pastor Jack. He was a very faithful husband to a a woman who had a debilitating disease for about eight years. And and when Arlette passed away, after a proper amount of time had gone by, Pastor Jack remarried. Well, would you point to this verse and say, well, now that he's a two-woman man, Pastor Jack can't serve in leadership? Well, no, of course not. Scripture makes it very clear that the marriage covenant ends when one spouse dies. So the fact that he's been married to two different women does not disqualify him. And I would say that for those who have demonstrated years of godliness and faithfulness, if they have had a past marriage failure, that does not preclude them from public service so long as they demonstrate dignity, and honesty and godliness in every other qualification, I would say if there has been repentance and a long period of public godliness, that they are qualified if they demonstrate that they are faithful spouses. So, the marriage requirement is not a mandate that they must be married, and it's not saying that you cannot serve if your spouse has died and you remarried, or I believe even if you have been divorced and remarried. However, we should not ignore this and make excuses for those who have not been faithful, either in their present marriages or in the past. This is a high calling. It extends not only to your spouse, but also to your children. And as with elders, the requirement that our homes be run well extends to those who lead in service. Uh, And I would say this, parents, parenting is a lifelong job and it's difficult. It's not a requirement that all of your children be perfect or no one would serve publicly. But it is a requirement that you are faithful 
in all of the requirements that Scripture gives. Faithful in leading devotions in your home. Faithful in praying with and for your children. I believe that these requirements, when humbly listened to, bless the entire church, and when they are ignored, they damage the church deeply. And so as we begin to think about what this means for us and for our church, I would encourage you to be reading through these and to be praying through these and to come to our meeting today at 3 o'clock and let's talk through these. I believe we have an obligation as we have heard the word to now think about how do we put this into practice. And I want to end this message with talking about what I believe it does look like biblically. Um, I hinted at it in different ways, but one of the questions that's essential to answer is, if, as I said last week, deacons don't meet with each other because their ministries are diverse and don't have much to do with each other, the example I gave then, I think, was someone who served in audiovisual ministry and someone who serves in benevolence ministry don't need to talk very much to each other, because their ministries don't overlap even remotely. Well, if that's true, the question is, how do deacons communicate with the elders and with the church? And what I believe the best model is, is for elders to meet regularly, monthly, and for deacons to communicate directly with the elders. So, for example, if we were to have a team of four elders, maybe we have 16 deacons, And each elder is responsible to maintain regular communications with the other four deacons. The elders come together and discuss the business of the church. Deacons are welcome but not required to join in any of those meetings. And so the way of communication always goes back to the godly men who are leading the church. And deacons are not responsible to spend unnecessary time meeting with people that do not share their particular ministry obligations. Now, there are probably more questions than I have even anticipated. I'm sure there are. So I would encourage you, write them down and come to our meeting today at three o'clock. I believe that we have the possibility and opportunity of doing ministry in some exciting ways this coming year. And I would ask that we would consider making some changes to make that ministry more efficient. And so I think it's appropriate and fitting to end this service with prayer and would ask that we would continue our study of the word in a meeting where we all talk together at three today. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would help us as we seek to follow your word to make good plans that will bless this congregation in our community, in our world. I pray for a sense of excitement and unity at what you are doing. Father, I praise you that, that while I am young and lack experience, you are eternal and all wise. I ask that you would bless us as a church that you have called together, who has covenanted together, that we would be faithful to your word and to you. And I pray that you'd bless our plans. 
I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.